good morning once again, uh, church family. Uh, excited to, to have the opportunity to teach and preach again. Um, I do want to take just a quick moment to um, just express uh, gratitude to Pastor Brett for his leadership over our youth. Um, as he said, uh, statistically speaking, uh, actually there's two statistics I think are crazy. One is that a significant majority of Christian converts, meaning lost, found, um, are youth, meaning they give their life to, to Christ as a youth. Um, and I want to say it's in the 90 percentile, 90% of Christians become Christians when they're, when they're youth. But then the other statistic uh, that's jarring is that statistically the time when most Christians leave the faith, uh, Christians leave the faith is between 18 and 24. And so the season that they walk into right after, um, you know, for many of them, they've given their life to Christ, uh, is oftentimes the hardest. And so we have to be praying for our youth. Um, we have to be praying for Pastor Brett. And we have to not just put it all on them either, but we have to help and, and lead by example uh, and mentor and, and be there for our youth. And so, um, so again, congratulations to, to Riley and to Haley. I know that we're praying for you guys um, as you go into this next season. And know that whether that's far or near, we're still your church family. Um, and so what a fun way to, to celebrate, to start our service. Um, I also want to just recognize, really our only announcement for today is that uh, next Sunday, um, Pastor Caleb and his family are actually here with us this morning, which is awesome, but uh, we're going to officially welcome them with the reception after service uh, next week. So make sure you guys are here. Uh, we want you to get a chance, uh, for those of you who haven't already, to interact with them I uh, just personally welcome them and for our church to just kind of uh, show them how excited we are for them to come and, and pastor and be a part of this church family. And so mark your calendars for next week. Uh, that'll be right after service. Um, so with all that being said, we're going to transition to the time in the service where we go to God's word. And if you've been here for uh, the last six weeks, uh, this is week seven, uh, we've been walking through the book of Philippians. And so I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles um, to Philippians. Today will be in chapter 3, the, the second half of chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Um, if you have a hard copy Bible, I encourage you to use that. We're only going to be in Philippians today. The only verses that we will be looking at will be from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. And so I invite you to just have that in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there's some provided there in the backs of the pews. Uh, we'll also be on the screen behind me as well. And, and I want to make a quick note that we are actually going to be concluding this series uh, today. Um, and we're doing that um, mostly because uh, next Sunday is going to be my last Sunday teaching. Um, and we're not going to be able to get through all of chapter four next week anyway. Uh, but also it gives us, it gives you guys rather, an opportunity to take the way we've kind of been going through Philippians and to continue walking through it on your own. And so I'm going to challenge you for the entirety of chapter 4 to continue doing what we've been doing uh, here on Sunday mornings. Uh, the reason why the Word is taught and preached in churches all around the world isn't just so that you can hear and learn new content, um, but also so that the way you approach Scripture can be modeled. And that's what our hope's been as we've been going verse by verse through this book. And so um, we're going to finish chapter 3 today. That'll leave all of chapter four, and I encourage you to do 
just what we've been doing. Um, looking each verse at a time. What does this verse say? What does it say in relation to the verses around it as well as Paul's overall message in the entirety of the book of Philippians, uh, which again, keeping in mind, is a letter to a church uh, not that different from our own, um, in which God has a specific uh, word for you. And so, um, so again, I encourage you to continue on in that, uh, but know that we will be concluding this series uh, today, and I'll be teaching on something different next week. But um, let's start by reading the text in its entirety, um, chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. It says this, Not that I have already reached the goal, or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our human condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Let's pray over the preaching and teaching of God's word. God, we love you, and Lord, we are just so thankful, and we say that so often, but God, we know it is infinitely true. Our gratitude could not possibly be expressed in words or with a whole lifetime of seeking and thanking, so we give you our whole selves and ask, God, that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds according to your word, which we believe is not just physical words on a page, but your very presence breathed out over us. And so help us, God, to, to breathe it in, to know that we are encountering the presence of God this morning and that you are speaking directly to us. God, remind us that your word is useful for encouraging, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness, and let us humbly receive whatever it is you have for us today, drawing us to yourself and equipping us to make yourself known. And so let these words, specifically in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21, uh, be your very words spoken out to us today. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to approach uh, these verses a little differently than we have. Um, over the last, again, seven weeks, we spent three weeks in chapter 1, two weeks in chapter 2, and this is our second week in chapter 3. Um, and so... Over the course, we've kind of looked, we've gone verse by verse, but we've done it a little differently each time, and we're going to do it a little bit differently again today. Um, and we're going to start with the end verses. Um, are there anybody, or is there anybody in here who uh, reads, likes to read the last chapter of a book 
um, before you've read the rest of the book? Anybody? Is there anybody in here who just really loves surprises to the point where you don't mind anything being spoiled, where you just kind of have to know the outcome ahead of time? Not very many? All right, well, the, one of the joys about the Christian faith and about following Jesus is that we get to know. Um, we get to know what the outcome is. And, and we don't always know the exact ways in which God is going to lead us specifically to that outcome, or even our church specifically to that outcome, or even to his entire uh, nation or his global church to that outcome. But we do know what the outcome itself is. And in knowing that outcome... It changes the way that we interact with Scripture. It changes the way we interact with one another. All the while, we are pursuing the, the end goal, right? And again, the, the means to that goal might look differently. It might be surprising to us. It might require us to place our faith in Jesus, but we can be grounded in what we're certain of in the future. And so what we're going to do today is look at this Scripture in, in that light, because what Paul does in the first few verses is he kind of talks about this this forward thinking that he has, this, this goal that's been set uh, before him that changes the way he approaches things and does things and acts, but then he doesn't give us what that goal is until verses 21 or verse 20 and 21. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna start with verse 20 and 21, look at what that end goal is, and then we're gonna go back through verses 12 through 19, verse by verse, verse by verse, looking kind of through Paul's lens in doing so. And we're going to spend most of our time doing that, looking at kind of his main point, the goal set before him, and then we'll spend the last few moments of the service going verse by verse through the rest of this passage. And so let's read verses 20 and 21 one more time before we uh, kind of look at it and, and break it down into our main point for this service. It says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly Wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And so I want to look at these two verses in three parts. The first of which is the truth that for believers, our citizenship is in heaven. That's the first kind of sub-point of our main point that we're going to get to, is know that our citizenship is in heaven. And what I like to do a lot of times is when we get words like citizenship, I like to take the, just the English dictionary definition and, and see how it's different, how it's the same, because sometimes the Bible uses words a little bit differently than we use them in the world. And what I found was kind of hard is it was kind of hard to find a dictionary definition of citizenship. Um, different dictionaries had different definitions that they were generally the same, but there were definitely some key differences. And so I kind of did a little hodgepodge, you know, mashup of the definitions, and here's what I came up with. Again, just using a few different um, dictionaries. Um, and I came up with this, that the definition of citizenship. So if you have citizenship, it means you are a member of a defined community by which you are afforded certain freedoms and expected certain responsibilities. So it means you're a member of a defined community. So you could be a citizen of a state. You could be a citizen of a country. Typically, we would refer to it or we would think of it as a citizen of a country. And in identifying or having membership of that particular organized, uh, spe specified community, you are thus afforded certain freedoms 
and expected certain responsibilities, which is true of our country. It's true of the citizenship we have as, as U.S. citizens. Um, and again, the freedoms would be you know, numerous, um, but there are responsibilities as well, things as, as, such as taxes and, and other things as such. And so, so you can see how it's an, a, a, kind of three parts, identified community, afforded certain freedoms and afforded or expected certain responsibilities. And so the question then for us is how does one gain citizenship? Right? And if you think about it again, in terms of citizenship for, for our country, there's uh, really a couple ways you can gain citizenship. One, you can be born here. Um, if you are born in this country, you are automatically granted uh, citizenship. And so we must ask ourselves, does that apply to us uh, in this biblical definition of citizenship? Have we earned uh, this heavenly citizenship that Paul is talking about by, by birth? Is it a birthright of ours? Well, no, it's not. Scripture says we've been, we're born into iniquity, um, that we are by nature ch- children of wrath, right? That we, that we are actually, it's interesting when, uh, if you look in Genesis, Adam and Eve were created, uh, Genesis 1, 27, they were created in the image of God. In his likeness, he made them male and female. Uh, and then you see when Adam and Eve have kids, it says that they were made in their likeness. Right? And that's not to say that, that we now, generations down, aren't made in God's likeness, but rather that we're primarily taking after our parents who have engaged in sin. Therefore, the sinful, natural sin, sinful inclination of our hearts have made it impossible for us to earn citizenship simply by birth. Whereas that maybe was the expectation or, or, or the original possibility, no longer made possible by the lineage of sin in the life of those who followed. And so no, we're not born into it. And so if we're not born into it, what is our other hope? Well, the other way you can gain citizenship, and this varies by country, um, is you can meet certain requirements, right? For example, in the United States, there's a specific amount of time you have to live here, a specific amount of requirements you have to meet. Some are job-related, some are test-related, knowing certain things about the country. Um, In other countries, it's different amounts of time or it's uh, you have to have proof of a certain amount of income so that you can actually contribute to their country. In some countries, there's wait lists. Uh, but the point being, there's a set of requirements so that you can gain or earn citizenship into that particular country. Um, and so is that possible for us? Are there a list of requirements that we can meet in order to, to earn citizenship into heaven? And, and it's kind of yes and no. It's kind of yes in the sense that God has given us his law that, that if it were possible to abide perfectly by it, right, then we could have a uh, right to, to citizenship in heaven. The problem is none have. Scripture actually says that none can because all are unrighteous, all have turned away from God, all have hated God, and thus we actually pay a, a penalty for that. Instead of earning citizenship, we actually earn the opposite, which is exclusion from, from God's kingdom. And so no... We're not born into it, nor is it possible. We haven't earned it, nor is it possible. And so what hope then do we have? Because Paul is telling us here right, that we have citizenship in heaven. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And so where does it come from if it's not by birth or if it's not earned? And church, this is really the gospel. This is the gospel where where God sent one who is a citizen, not only a citizen, but a founder of the kingdom, a creator of the kingdom, um, into this world, which is broken and marred by sin, 
in order to, to pay the, the penalty, which is our forever exclusion from God's kingdom, and by his own living according to the law, and meeting the requirements that we were totally incapable of meeting on our own, has granted us, by his righteousness, citizenship in heaven. So it's by no doing of our own, and totally by the doing of Christ, that we have been granted citizenship in heaven. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't be born into it. It was given and given freely by Jesus. And so when Paul says that we are citizens of heaven, that's really the, the, the fruit of the gospel. Right? The, the gospel is the good news that Jesus came and made a way for us to, to have eternal life, for us to be a part of the kingdom. But that's the, that's the goal. We're saved right, from the consequences of sin and saved for citizenship of heaven. And so we inherit citizenship by the person and only by the person of Jesus. And so what then do we do with this citizenship? It leads us kind of the second point of our main point from verses 20 and 21, which is we eagerly await Christ's return. We eagerly await Christ's return. So again, in verse 20, he says that, that we are citizens of heaven and thus we eagerly await uh, for our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he's not referring to his original coming. He's referring to a future coming that Jesus will return. And so how do we finally and fully inherit our citizenship? Upon Christ's return. This has been a theme for Paul in Philippians, right? Because remember in, in, in chapter uh, in the end of chapter one, remember Paul kind of goes back and forth saying that I, I wish that I, you know, I know it's, it'd be better for me to depart and be with Christ, but for your sake, it's better that I stay here. And so he's kind of describing that tension that he has of longing to be with Christ, but, but knowing that for their sake, it's better to be, to be here. And the reason he's, he's, he has that tension is because he knows the goal is to depart and be with Christ. But if Christ has him here, then it's so that others might know his name and, and thus the kingdom might add citizens prior to his departure. And so he longs for Christ's return. He eagerly awaits Christ's return. Another theme of Philippians is the theme of suffering. And we wouldn't probably think of it this way, but I often think of suffering in three parts. Uh, one, Christians are going to suffer um, internally, uh, meaning that we're going to suffer because once we know the goal, once we understand that we're citizens of heaven, but we realize the, the sinful inclinations of our own heart is a battle of our flesh, right? We, again, Paul, again, describes the internal battle. He, he does the things he doesn't want to do. He doesn't do the things he does want to do. It's this fight and this sufferable war that we're at in our own, in our own hearts, in our own flesh, because we know there's something better, yet we're still sinners. And so it's this tension that causes suffering in the life of a believer. There's also external sufferings. You have internal suffering with your own self. You have external suffering, which is, could be one, circumstantial, just things that happen around you, but also the sinfulness of other people could affect you negatively. Uh, the Bible actually tells us that we will face this because the world is going to hate those who identify with Christ. All right, and so we suffer internally, we suffer externally, but one of the sufferings that I don't think we really think of it this way is, is the, the agonizing wait to be with Christ. Because in one sense, we have Christ now. We, we, we talked about this 
uh, just a few Sundays ago with the idea that, that we have been saved, that justification, we are being saved as we work out sanctification, as we work out our salvation, but that one day we will be glorified. We'll be saved finally and fully. There will be no sin. There will be no obstacle. There will be no struggle. There will be fully in the presence of Jesus forever. And so even though we can rejoice and have the joy of Christ in us now, man, have you ever, church, have you ever had something that you know was coming, whether it was when you were little and it was a Christmas gift that you just could not wait? And even though you're excited and joyful, the wait is agonizing, almost sufferable, because you want it so bad. Right? And when Paul is saying here that he's eagerly awaiting Christ's return, I imagine it to be the same way. Agonizing to wait for what's to come when you know the fullness of what's to come. And here's the thing, the more we live on this earth, the more clearly we're going to see glimpses and pictures of what that's going to look like and the harder it should be for us to want to be here. Ultimately, we willingly subject to it because we know it's God's will, and so we even find joy in staying. But ultimately, the goal of being with Christ and eagerly awaiting his return. And so we know that we are citizens of heaven, and as such, we long to be there right? because we're not there now. And then thirdly, the third point, Christ will transform us into the likeness of his glorious Body, And we see that in verse 21. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And so we are transformed by Christ. Again, it's to no doing of our own. He is the one that, and again, this is, this is referring to his return and the, the, the being with him forever and eternity is, is fully and finally as citizens of heaven, officially no longer uh, dual citizens with this world, but citizens with heaven, in heaven, with Christ. Um, he, he is saying that, that it, is, it is Christ that does that, that Christ that will bring us into that new state. And it is by, by his power, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And so we're transformed by Christ we're transformed into his likeness, not that we're going to be equal with Christ, but that we are going to be uh, a, a reflection, and, and uh, as he originally created us to be, made in his image and likeness, perfectly so, as a, as a means or as, a, as an image bearer that gives all glory and honor back to him for, for all of eternity, and we are transformed for that reason, for his glory, so transformed by Christ, transformed into his likeness, and transformed for his glory. Again, notice how verse 21 ends. That enables him to subject everything to himself. Everything including you and I. That even in our perfect state, our state of, of we've made it as citizens of heaven, right? we are still subject to him who made us. Subject as in all of our being for all of eternity, perfectly giving worship back to the Father. And that that's actually where we find our most joy is in doing so. And that we won't be distracted by the things of this world any longer. It'll just be us worshiping in his likeness, transformed by him to no doing of our own, giving joy forever. And so church, when, when Paul talks about, Paul refers to the future, that is what he's referring to. And so what I want to do is I want to summarize all that into one main idea, which is really just putting those last two verses into our own words. 
Um, but then let's go back through the, the, the preceding verses to see how Paul's, how Paul's mindset is influenced by knowing that and how, how our mindset and our day-to-day walking out our faith should be influenced by knowing where we belong, right, that it's coming, and what it's going to look like. And so here's the main point. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we eagerly await Christ's return, by whose power we will be transformed into the likeness of himself. I think we've got it on the screen, but I'll read it one more time. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we eagerly await Christ's return, by whose power we will transform will be transformed into the likeness of himself. And again, church, if we believe this, our life will look different. Right? If we truly believe that we don't belong here, and we truly believe that the best thing for us is not here, and we truly believe that, that Christ will return to, to grant us that reward, which again, not, hasn't been earned by us, but freely given by him, and will last eternally. When we believe that with every fiber of our being, it will change the way that we live our life. It will change the way we think. It will change the way we perceive the world. It will change the things we do, the things we say. It will change the people that we surround ourselves with and why we surround ourselves with the people we surround ourselves with. It will change the way we approach certain relationships. It will change the way we spend our time. It will change the way we, we talk, the words we say, the words we don't say. The way we spend our money will change everything. And so, so look now at the the verses that, that precede, and again, I'm going to go through these relatively quickly, but we need to look at how these influence Paul's very words leading up to this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Not that I have already reached the goal, or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it, because I also have been taken hold of by Christ. Again, notice that Paul recognizes he hasn't reached it yet. He recognized that, that the goal has not yet been reached. It's, it's been secured. Right? Again, he's been taken hold of by Jesus, again, to no doing of his own, but he still recognizes that the, the ultimate goal still lies ahead. And so he's not calling himself perfect, which we'll actually see him talk more of in a few verses down, but he recognizes that, that he is imperfect, as we will be until that final day comes as we seek to, to live up to that likeness, again, not to earn it, but because we know it's what we've ultimately been created to be and what one day lies ahead. And then verse 13, it says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. And again, a couple of things here. One, again, he says, I, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. Right? Paul recognizes he's been taken hold of by Christ. It's not him that initiated the taking hold of. Right? But he also understands that, that he still reaches forward as one who's been taken hold of by Christ. Right? Again, we've, we've talked about this before when, when Paul talked about at the beginning of, or the middle of chapter 2 when he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling uh, as one whom God has done a work in. Right? And so it's only by the work that he's done in us that we could possibly do a work outside of us. And it's the same idea here. 
Right? That because Paul has, or because God rather has, has grasped onto Paul, because God has grasped onto us, it then gives us the ability that we didn't have otherwise to reach out for and, and, and grab onto God as well, living and looking forward to what's ahead. And notice that we get to do it together. Right? It's not this solo um, individual pursuit. Or, or longing, or looking ahead. But notice he says, brothers and sisters. Now these aren't his actual brothers and sisters. Right? I say actual, referring to by blood. This is church family. This is his community. And so he gets to do this alongside others. I don't know about you, I don't know a single person that they have the option to enjoy something so amazing, totally alone, no one could ever hear about it or know about it or to enjoy something with all of their loved ones, who wouldn't want to enjoy it with their loved ones? And God has given us a perfected version of family in the local church, which will ultimately be even more so perfected in the eternity that lies ahead because it won't be segregated or divided, but it'll be people from all different languages and tongues and backgrounds and cultures all around the world from different time periods, all coming together to worship God as one. And we get to enjoy that even now as we long for forgetting our old self, but reaching forward because of our new self to what's ahead. And again, the joy there and the importance of the community is that we're going to mess up. Right? As Paul just said in verse 12, right? we're not perfect. We haven't yet attained it. Right? And so we need the reminders from loved ones to, to point us to that goal, to encourage us to, to say that, that, that there is better ahead, to, to, to flee and to shed off the, the, the sinful inclinations of our heart, of our former selves, right? and to together pursue one goal as one church. In verse 14, he describes this pursuit. He says, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. One, notice that it is a promise of God's. God does not break his promises. His promises are yes and amen. And so we can know that, again, even though we haven't fully grasped it or attained it. Again, it's guaranteed. It's, it's certain insofar as you have the Holy Spirit as a, as a down payment and evidence of your salvation. It is certain that it will happen because God has promised it and God does not break his promise. And so we therefore pursue as our goal that prize which has been promised. And again, know that the, the prize is not some made up picture of eternity. It is a, a spending time, all time, with Jesus in the presence of God. Again, it's not whatever we are, are kind of told or imagine heaven to be growing up that we're going to, um, again, get to, to watch our, our favorite athletes play against one another from different eras to settle any uh, greatest of all time debates. It's not even going to be having a big family reunion with your loved ones that have passed. Right? And, if, and if that's the thing you look most forward to in heaven, then you are drastically, drastically uh, underestimating the good that God has for you and, and minimizing eternity. It's not to say that we won't in some way that we can't even comprehend now be reunited with, with all believers, some of which will be loved ones and spouses and 
and, and children and, and parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, but the best part isn't going to even be that. It's going to be what we're doing in that community, which is bringing praise to God's name for all time. And again, when Paul's talking about the goal he's pursuing, he's pursuing his citizenship. He's pursuing that which he eagerly awaits. He's pursuing the, the image, the likeness that he will be transformed into that he, again, refers to in verses 20 and 21. And in Philippians, or verse 15, going down more verses, it says, Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. And so again, it changes the entire way we think when the goal is at the forefront of our mind, the forefront of our decisions, the forefront of our hearts. And God directs our thinking to be forward in this way as a sign of maturity, meaning that the more you grow in maturity, the more your eyes are fixated on what's ahead. And that doesn't mean you just let go of all earthly responsibilities because the reality is, uh, as a parent, you still have to teach your kids about the Bible, right? You still have to make sure they have food on the table. It doesn't mean you just ignore those responsibilities and say, sorry, I'm just too busy thinking about eternity lies ahead. But rather that every action, every word, all of it points you and those around you to that final moment, right? And so, so everything and I know for myself, that's definitely not the case. And so I, like us all, like Paul himself, who hasn't yet arrived, as he said in verse 12, need maturing, right, as that day approaches, that our mind will become more and more eternally focused, less and less present focused. And then verse 16, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. And again, this is just where discipleship comes into play, that that, again, there's room for maturing. Um, it's, again, going back to chapter 2, kind of in the middle there, the working out of our salvation. Um, but imagine becoming a citizen of another country, right? One that is foreign to you. And again, we can know about, we can know about heaven because the Bible teaches us about it. But ultimately, uh, we're foreigners in the sense that we haven't been there yet. Right? And so here on earth, we're, we're learning and, and growing and our understanding of, of what it's going to be like. Just like if you were to move to another country, you've got to learn the culture, you've got to learn the language, you've got to learn the way people talk to each other and don't talk to each other. And, and ultimately, you're accountable to what you know. And what this is telling us is that, that whether you've been following Jesus for a minute or you've been following Jesus for 30 years, whatever it is you know, as you grow in the knowledge of him, as again, as Paul's saying, as you pursue that goal, as you, as you strive forward to what's ahead, that you're accountable to, to live according. And again, it doesn't mean you just say, you claim ignorance and say, sorry, I don't know anything, or you, you, you refuse to pursue knowledge because therefore you're not accountable. Right? Because if you know it as the prize, you couldn't help but pursue it. Right? And so to refuse to seek to know would really be evidence of not knowing at all. But rather what he's saying here is that it's okay for people to be in different places as long as you are growing and moving forward to what's ahead seeking to know more of what your citizenship in heaven really means, longing even greater for Christ's return, desiring even more so to be transformed in the likeness of his image, subjected to his rule for all of eternity. And then verse 17 says, Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Church, it should be 
obvious that we are not citizens of here. It should be obvious. Have you ever met somebody from a different country who lives here and you've been able to tell, right? Or, or let me flip it. Let me flip it. Have you ever been somewhere and you know that it is obvious that they know you don't live there, right? Because you, 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 you're an outsider. You talk different. You, you do things different. You think different. Church, that is us here in this life. We should talk different. We should look different. Our, our culture should be different. We should be focused on different things. And it should be obvious to the world around us. And so I ask to you, is, is it obvious? And that's not to say that you won't need to use words, right, to, to tell people of your allegiance to the citizenship you have in heaven. But it is to say that if it influences your entire life, there's no way the people around you wouldn't know. And I think that for most of us, there are probably more people who know our earthly citizenship by the way we live and the things we do than people that know where our heavenly citizenship lies. So it should be obvious. And then verse 18 and 19, the last two verses, I want to go ahead and invite the worship team up as we consider this final thought and, and perhaps the, the most, most burdening of our hearts of all of it this morning. And again, we're looking at these verses in light of the, the goal that Paul set. Verse 18 and 19 says, For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their, their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They're focused on earthly things. Church, because Paul understood where it is he belonged, and because Paul understood and eagerly anticipated Christ returning because he knew that with it came the transforming of his own self to, to, to perfect likeness, of the Father. The inevitable inference that we can draw is that those that aren't citizens are enemies of God. And those that aren't citizens, their end is not unity with the Father. Their end is not the same goal that Paul laid out or the, the prize that Paul is pursuing, but rather it is destruction. And so what that tells us is, is, one, we need to be careful whom we're, whom we're listening to, right? That they don't influence our culture more than, than our culture influences them. I remember I had a conversation one time when I was in school. Um, our, our school was a really small Christian school, and they were about to, uh, join a, or they're about to start a football program. And I had a small group with um, one of the I can't remember his position. One of the higher-ups at the school was like the vice president or something of, of all of Southeastern. And I remember one of the guys in the class um, asked, do you think our culture is going to be okay with the influx of a football program? Um, which is a little bit stereotyping that football players bring bad culture. Um, but what the leader said, as he said, we believe that our, our culture that we have here 
will be able to influence any other group that we bring, whether it's a sport or a different program, a different college or, or, or focus of study. And church, the same thing has to be true for the church. That, that one, we are the influencers, not the influencees. But the only way we can do that is if we've identified who are citizens of heaven and who aren't. That's not to say we go around judging you're a Christian, you're not. Right? God is the one that divides the sheep from the goats. But again, it's obvious by the way they live. If they identify and if they are a citizen of heaven or not. And so one, it, it, chooses, it, it changes who we, who we allow to influence us. But the second thing it does is it, it ought to burden our hearts. I can hear the emotion in Paul's voice as he's writing this. He's saying, I say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Right? Not just some who are good people but are seeking a different way to heaven. Right? Enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says their end is what? It's destruction. And so church, it should break our hearts to see the loss around us. That's why when we start every service, we started off by praying, yes, that, that we would know God, but that, but that God would soften the hearts of the lost, that they might know him. And that the, the only equipping he does for us, the only knowledge we gain of him that's any useful at this point is that which is used for the sharing and, and making him known. Right? Just like at the end of chapter one, Paul's words, he says, it's better for your sake that I stay, even though it's far better for me to go and be with Christ. And so if we're here, everything has to be for that purpose. Yes, we long to be with him, but as long as we're here, we seek those around that don't yet know. And I think that what happens sometimes is when you've been in a culture long enough, right, or you've been a citizen of a particular place long enough, right, the different kinds of brokenness we just start to become numb to. Right? Pastor Nick said it when he was here that, um, you know, if you see one homeless person, right, it breaks your heart. All of a sudden you see a thousand homeless people and it numbs it. I think the same thing happens to us. Church, I know there are family members in here. I know there are coworkers in here. I know there are longtime childhood friends, neighbors that you know that do not know Jesus. And the Bible says that they're not just good old Sally and Joe, but they're enemies of our Creator. And so it should burden our hearts to the point of tears like with Paul. But it should lead us to live our life here on earth as we long for and await to be with them forever. That we might, that God might use us to bring them along with us. So I'm going to pray and I encourage you this morning, church, to really consider, and, and as we pray, really every Sunday, but as we prayed specifically this morning, that in the Bible, it encourages, yes. It teaches and trains in righteousness, yes. It also rebukes. It also corrects. 
So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I don't know that my citizenship is evident to the world around me. I think that maybe I've just grown numb to those that are citizens of this world and haters of God. I think that maybe not every one of my decisions, like Paul, is forward-focused. And you need to, to repent, and you need to, to seek Him. Let's do that humbly this morning. Again, notice how he says it. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself, which is His power. So this isn't a will yourself to be different but rather a lean, lean into the power of him whom has promised you citizenship and whom will carry it out and whom will be the subject of our new bodies made in his likeness for all of eternity and allow it to be the focal point of every decision, thought, and every single thing you do. And if in any way that's not you, as it is with all of us, the altar will be open and invite you to respond. And if you're here and you've never surrendered to that truth and you're currently living as a citizen of this world and as the Bible puts it uh, your God is your stomach um, and, and, and your glory is your shame if that rings any sort of bell with you or if you just have questions um, and would like to know more about how you can surrender your life to this Jesus and have these certainties true for you I invite you to respond as well but all all, whether 100-year Christian or whether 10-minute Christian or the non-Christian, we all must respond to the Word of God. It doesn't come back void. And so we'll respond whether we realize it or not. Uh, but let's respond together as brothers and sisters in the faith, humbly, asking God to transform us, even in part now, as we eagerly await His coming.